listening to the Story Embers podcast, a podcast dedicated to guiding and inspiring Christian storytellers to glorify God with excellent craftsmanship. I'm your host, Grace Livingston, and welcome to episode 22, How to Keep Readers Up Until 2 a.m. Hi everyone, I'm Grace Livingston. I'm Josiah DeGraff. I'm Hope Ann. And I'm Brandon Miller. And we're back with all new episodes covering topics on all areas of storycraft and the writer's life. Every third week of the month, I'll be joined by a panel of fellow Story Ember staff members and we'll discuss everything from the writing lifestyle and faith in writing down to the nitty gritty workings of plot, characters, and theme. Today, we're ushering in another year of the podcast with probably one of my favorite episodes yet, how to keep readers up until 2 a.m. We're going to tackle suspense, cliffhangers, emotional tension, and all that good stuff that make us readers clear our schedule for the day so we can finish a book in one sitting. Okay, to get us started here, Hope, Brendan, and Josiah, what are some of your favorite examples of books that kept you up late into the night? And what do you think the authors did that made the book so gripping? Hope, let's start with you. I think for me, my one book that I would pick is Sanderson's Oathbringer, which is a huge book, so I did not stay up till 2 a.m. reading it. Actually, I'm not sure I like, stayed up last night when I finally finished it. One thing that he did, and I've noticed, like, cliffhangers are your normal way everyone says you need know, the, the ending things with cliffhangers, which, I mean, can work and does work. But even more than that is the emotional cliffhangers more than the physical ones, I feel like. The... You're getting bits of a backstory, you know something horrible has happened, but you don't know what. The emotional aspects of a story for me are more suspenseful than the physical aspects. And especially with, like, say, Oathbringer, like, I can assume that this character is going to live. But he, Sanderson's very good with the, you don't actually know if they're going to be good or evil in the end. Like, this is a good guy. You are 92% sure he's going to stay good. But at the same time, there's a very real, like, you can see how this could go really wrong. And he could think he's doing the good thing, the right thing, and go completely evil. And I just know that's something that Sanderson does a lot, where his characters could turn evil. And I, some of them may have, I'm not sure. I feel like some of them have, but I don't remember. I have to read them again. But um, that tension with characters of, not even will they live or will they die, will they save this person or not, but are they actually going to stay good or is this going to be a negative arc and they're going to turn evil? And that is a really powerful means of gripping your readers and just creating realistic characters and lots of tension and drama in general. I'm going to pick two recent books I read that are two very different kinds of suspense. One book is uh, is uh, The King by Stephen James. Stephen James is a Christian suspense writer. Um, I've read a bunch of his books. I really like his stuff. Um, it's a bit dark and gritty, but I like it a fair bit. And there the suspense is, you know, the, the people are, are hunting this, you know, this kind of depraved murderer. And, you know, it's a, the, the suspense of, you know, are they going to be saving, be able to save who they think is his next victim? You know, are they going to be able to outwit him? 
because of the fact that it's also getting toward the last book in the series, you're also wondering, you know, these characters don't necessarily have plot armor anymore. Some of these characters I really care about. There's a point in the book where I thought that a character I, I really cared about was going to die. And I was like, I'm going to legitimately cry if after following this character for six books or whatever, they're going to die here. And that was really suspenseful for me because it's like, normally you're like, oh, they won't kill. But here it's like, this is the second to last book of the series. This would be a perfect, where they're hunting the person who's the arch villain. This would be the perfect motivation for the hero to beat them in the last book. But please, please, please don't do this. So that was one example of suspense. Another example is from a book um, I had recommended by a number of people, including, uh, including my good friend Brandon here called A Monster Calls which was probably the fourth, I think it was the fourth book to ever make me cry. The type of suspense in that book is not the suspense of, oh my goodness, there's this depraved murder going after the kid, going after these protagonists, but it's a suspense of, oh my goodness, I really care about this character and he's dealing with some really bad things and I really, really want to know what's going to happen because I care about him and so I care about the things that he cares about. And there's a lot more to the book, like how you know, beautiful, the proses and everything else. But those I feel like are interesting contrasting pairs of suspense because one is a lot more high beat than the other. One is what most people think of when they think of suspense, arguably. But this is, you know, the quiet suspense of I care about this character, I want to see what happens to them is also kind of suspense in my book. Two examples that I have maybe to add to the conversation one would be Leviathan Wakes by James A. Corey, the first book in the Expanse series. Um, lots of content issues, so this isn't a recommendation. But one, so the start of the book, you're dealing with these very isolated, very normal people. There's like a police officer slash detective, maybe, but not like it does. It's not as cool as it sounds. And then a mining guy on a ship out in space and like just these very random people with very small scopes of influence. And then things start going like really ridiculous things start happening, happening to them that they cannot explain. And so they all have to go searching for answers to these really bizarre encounters and attacks and equipment malfunctions, whatever, whatever's going on. There's so much in the story that right off the bat stops. Like it doesn't make sense. And it poses a question in your mind where you're just trying to figure out what's going on. And a lot of his chapters end with not a cliffhanger of, oh, I'm about to find out what's, you know, find out a new piece of information. They like you find out the piece of information and then they end. And it's kind of like an inverse cliffhanger, but it was really effective to me. It was kind of like you're putting as you're reading, you're putting the puzzles together. And the time that you're least likely to stop working on a puzzle is right after you found out where a new piece goes because now you have new information to digest and you have this adrenaline rush from getting your piece in and you have you, you have new options for where to check pieces. And so whenever he would end a chapter revealing some piece of information, I could always flip to the next chapter because I was like, oh, okay, this story is moving. This story is going places. I'm going to get answers to my questions as opposed to having to be teased teased through it he made me really curious at the start and then instead of having to drag me through his story he just had to like keep leaving breadcrumbs and keep feeding me and baiting me into reading more so i thought that was really interesting uh, a second example kind of slightly 
are very different, but kind of the same principle actually is if the end of a chapter that you write is really funny, like if there's a like a really good joke. Uh, earlier this year, I read Terry Pratchett's Going Postal. If I laughed at the end of a chapter, absolutely guarantee you I'm reading the first page of the next chapter because I am having a good time. And so that's just something that maybe that's just me, but that really works on me. I will not put a book down if I'm in the middle of laughing because that's like the pinnacle of having a great time right there. Yeah. And there's something to that because I read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, especially when I'm stressed and I need to get myself in a better mood. And I think there's what, five novels? I've gone through two or three of them. I haven't read all of them yet. But sometimes I'm just like, okay, I need something light. And I'll just pick that up and read it because it's completely ridiculous. And it's it's so easy just to keep reading and keep reading. Like, there's nothing suspenseful happening in that, oh, I want to know what's happening to these characters. Like, the plot is almost non-existent in most of that. But it's just funny. And I love it. And I just keep reading it. I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's so weird and unique and awesome. It's on my shelf, and I so need to get to it so much. You really do, Brandon. Like, it is right up your alley. I know. I want to read it so bad. I read the first page, and it killed me. Okay, moving right along. What are some techniques that you all like to use in your writing to keep readers turning the page? My favorite is wait till the third draft. I, I, I do think there's a lot of wisdom in that. My first drafts are not going to be very suspenseful. And normally my second drafts are me figuring out who the characters are. I mean, every draft is kind of me doing that because you know, characters are my, are my struggle point. Mood. But, but I, I do think there's a lot of wisdom to, to the third draft being the place where you do that. The difference between Josiah and I in that situation is that Josiah probably actually gets to the third draft every once in a while. Just a thought. Hey, if you don't get to five drafts, you're not doing it right. On a, on a, on a more serious... Uh, no, no, to answer this question, though, um, one of my favorite techniques to use, and you can't always do this, but kind of in light of what Brandon was saying earlier about kind of you know, the puzzle piece. And once you fit one in, you know, you want to you want to keep going. One of my favorite ways to end a chapter is with a character revelation of some kind, because when an audience suddenly realizes that this character isn't quite who they think they is, are, that's one of the things that gets me when I'm reading. And that's one of the things I like to bring out is end it with some big kind of character revelations and it doesn't need to be a you know a luke i'm your father moment but just something that's surprising uh that the character realizes or decides um to close off the chapter with i'll quit off of my chapters i will end them when something's about to happen they've made a decision and they're about to do it and you know they're idiots and they're going to get into terrible trouble and you want to watch it and then i end the chapter and for me Chapter endings come pretty instinctively to me. They just kind of work. The ones, I mean, I'm assuming they work. But, like, planning them. I don't have to have spend a lot of trouble planning them. It just, like, this feels like a good chapter break because something's about to happen. I don't want to break it in the middle of what's happening, so I'll break it before because then people also want to read to find out what happens. Another thing I'll use for suspense is backstory and foreshadowing and that generally comes in second third draft because i'll figure it out as i'm writing the first draft and generally i'll refigure it out as i'm writing the second draft and i have to actually go remember to add it in as i'm editing it as 
my post again to the end and realizing I haven't actually mentioned it again. Um, and so backstory, I love doing backstory that whatever is happening in the story, something caused it. And that's something I love tying into the climax of the story. But then you just have to work on building in the backstory itself so it people want to know what happens. And the other is just foreshadowing of who's the bad guy, who is whatever they're trying to figure out is just working on foreshadowing that in a way of, you know, something bad is going to happen. You know, there's someone bad here, whatever it is, but you don't know who it is. Or, I mean, there's obviously a hundred different ways, a hundred different things you can be foreshadowing and why you're foreshadowing them. But those are two things that I consciously use in my own work. Now, what about techniques that don't work very well, in your opinion? Are there some techniques you've seen other authors use that maybe aren't as effective as they should be? I would say the really obvious um, cliffhanger. That's only a cliffhanger because they put a new page and a chapter header between the two. Like when there's no reason that there should be a chapter break here, except that you want me to start the next chapter. So you're going to break off the action right here. It really frustrates me. There's a difference between we've made a decision and now we're going to go do something about it. That's a cliffhanger that works. But just he ran up along the edge, period. New chapter, chapter heading and jumped off. That really bugs me because it's like you don't trust that your story is good enough to keep me reading. You have to just kind of gimmick me through your chapters. Speaking of gimmicks and those kinds of things, one of the worst defenders I've seen of that practice is by Hardy Boy slash Nancy Drew novels which do these to a fault, like each, the end of almost every chapter is, they're about to die, first page of the next chapter, oh, no they're not, here's how they escape within the first page, it's like, really? Now, don't get me wrong, when I was a middle schooler, those things got me, I plowed through <laughs> those things like books like they were candy, so is there an age and audience for that kind of thing? Sure. But, you know, those, those aren't going to get me anymore. And, they, you know, I realize now that they're the gimmick that middle school me didn't realize. My mom called Hardy Boys junk food reading. I also really liked Hardy Boys. <laughs> I mean, your mom wasn't wrong, though. No, she wasn't. And I'm too scared now to go back and try and read one. They're just going to rest there in my um, memory where they're supposed to be. I think I read, like, three of them, and they all repeated the same part. I just remember the first one, the bad guy turned good at the end, and I was like, seriously, this is so stupid. I was young then, too. Or, <laughs> middle like, school hope is... was smarter than Brandon and I. <laughs> I may have been older than middle school, I'm not sure. It's been a while, though. I was at least teens. But um, the one thing that annoys me is when they end with a cliffhanger, but you open it up the next chapter apparently wasn't anything which i did in my very first book when i was like 12 because where it ends with they heard a hiss and there was rattlesnakes and then the next chapter starts with the rattlesnakes slithered away through the grass and they had nothing to do with the rest of the story <laughs> and but you see stories that do it in a bit more sophisticated way than 12 year old me but um they have a cliffhanger and then it's just it's just like it's not actually a problem. Just like when you have the opening scene where it looks like the main character is in this life and death fight and he gets defeated and then you realize, oh, it's just a practice session, which can work, but also I've seen them too much to annoy me because, no, you weren't actually ever in any danger, so why are you making us think that? 
And so the ones where they make you think there's danger and there's actually not danger, you get too much of that. And it's just like, okay, this is stupid. I don't care. That is one of my will make me put the book down faults. If it opens with a fight scene and then in the second chapter, it's like, oh, and nope, this is just his master training him. I hate that so, so much. It's like, why am I going to trust you with my emotions if this is how you're going to treat me? I picked up your book because I wanted to read it. You don't have to trick me to make me think it's exciting. Just like, can we do the story now, please? Except at that point, I don't want the story. I just want a different book. Yeah. And I think one of the things this is getting at is that I think in the long term, suspense is you know, really about promises. That when, you know, Why does Rear feel suspense? Well, they feel suspense when you're asking a narrative question and are promising them that you're going to have a good answer for them that they really want to know. And eventually, you you know, if you're if you're just using gimmicks and cheap tricks like this, well, your reader is going to feel like Charlie Brown when Lucy keeps pulling the football away from him. Eventually, you're like, I know what you're doing here, I, and, and it's not going to be as suspenseful anymore because you you know, building suspense is half about asking good narrative questions that makes the reader want to follow along in your story. The other half is showing the reader that when you make a promise, you're going to keep it and give them an interesting answer to the question. Last question for you guys. Do you think a story can be too suspenseful? I would say it depends on your genre. It depends on your target audience. I don't think a story can be too suspenseful if it's done right. Now, if you're, I mean, thrillers are going to be action, action, action. And the whole point is that they be suspenseful. Now, when, depending on whether your book is plot-based or character-based, depending on the point of your book, of your audience, of your genre. Frankly, I feel like you should have this regardless of any of that. But you do want to have reactions. People want to see character reactions. Like for me, I don't want to read something that's just fight scene after fight scene after fight scene. But that isn't suspense. Suspense can be fight scenes, but suspense is also much more than fight scenes. And reaction is as much of that as anything else. So I feel like well done suspense. No, a book can't be too suspenseful i feel like people can try to write suspense do it poorly and get a book that's just bang 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 all these action points and nobody cares because they've never taken any time to develop the emotional aspects of the story i hope you completely um just described how middle school me wrote and i heartily sign on to everything you just said there um i'll say that this is sort of an answer sort of not an answer um, Robert Triskillard's Merlin Spiral, I read that years ago. I really enjoyed it. I have not been back, though, to read it again, because the it's exhausting. The plot line goes like this. Unexpected bad thing happens. Unexpected bad thing happens. Unexpected bad thing happens. Expected bad thing happens. Unexpected bad thing happens. For the entire book, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and more hopeless and more hopeless and more hopeless. And then somehow at the end, like it still ends happily and in a not in a not cheap way. Like it, the ending works, but reading the book is exhausting. There's not any good things happening, and it just gets so hopeless that it's really unnecessarily heavy. So there's a difference between suspense and just bad things happening. But you do want to make sure that your story is enjoyable while your readers are being drugged through it. You don't want a reader to just only be reading it because they can't put it down. You want them to be reading it because they're enjoying it and also they can't put it down. 
Yeah, I've read those. I just remember that they were very dark. I didn't think of them as suspenseful so much. I was younger then. It's been a number of years since I've read them. But for me, it was just, they're probably my first stories that were like, really, I'm like, these are dark. Not because, I mean, there were sacrifices and druids and different things. I'm not sh- I can't remember everything that happened. But yeah, like you said, there's so much bad stuff that happens and there's never really any like comeback from that and humor. Like, I remember one of the first books I wrote in my novels, a friend's like, you realize there's no humor in here. Like, oh, yeah. So now I work on making sure I have humor. My, there's amusing parts of my story as well. Which now my characters are just all idiots and so it's funny. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. And that's that's some suspense and some just, like what you said, you want to enjoy the story. You want to, I mean, I enjoy a dark story too on a certain level. But it's not an amusing level. I don't know. I think one of the biggest elements of suspense have any of you ever heard a version of the theory that there are only there are four ways to end a scene, but only like one or two actually right ways to ever do it? It's where I read it in a, the fantasy fiction formula by Deborah Chester. I don't know that I can recommend the book for other advice <laughs> beyond this one, but one of the only takeaways I had from it is she proposed that you can end a scene with yes, no, yes, but, no, and furthermore, which is where the character goes into the scene with a goal. And if that they reach that goal, your answer is yes. If they achieve that goal, but there are unforeseen consequences, it's a yes, but. Or no, they don't achieve the goal, and that's it. Or no, and furthermore, like they did not achieve their goal, and extra bad stuff happened. And in the uh, book, she said that you mostly want to use yes, but, because if it's just yes, there's no suspense. And there's no point in anything that happens. And if it's just no, then it's just bad things after bad things after bad things happening like you were talking about, Brandon. But it's the yes, but. Like, yes, they achieved their goal, but there were some unforeseen consequences or another element that got thrown in. And even the no and furthermore, which is where, you know, they didn't get their uh, goal. And also we added in another horrible thing, although that could quickly devolve into just a bunch of bad stuff happening again. But, like, a good mix of those, I think, is key to suspense. The yes, but mm-hmm. no and principle is one of my favorite principles, and that was a great explanation of it. Yeah, because that's similar to what K.M. Weiland teaches. She, had, she uses different words of having an end in a, generally building up the climax. Everything's going to either end in a disaster or the threat of a disaster. So even if something bad doesn't happen, you know there's a threat of oh, we've done this, now he might know, or now this, or now this. There's something. Each success ends with some sort of tension until pretty much the very end where they can actually start winning. Well, thanks for joining me, guys, and thanks, listeners, for tuning in. You can learn more about each of the panelists on today's episode at storyinverse.org slash about. And as always, special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Taylor Clogston and Michael Stanton. Your support means so much as we strive to better guide and inspire Christian storytellers and improve the SE site as a whole. You can become a supporter today at patreon.com slash Thanks again for listening and be sure to tune in next time on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, or Stitcher for the next episode of the Story Embers podcast. <laughs>